0: process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. HITRUST is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at hightrustalliance.net. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com.
1: There, and you are very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSB Magazine. This is Sean Martin, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the public-private collaboration and how we ensure safety in our digital worlds uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. And uh, there's a lot we've got, got uh We've done well, I'll say, uh, leading up to today uh, and a lot in the works uh, with hopefully a a bright future for how government and commercial entities can work together to uh, to make things safer in our digital world. So with that, I'm thrilled to introduce two good friends on the show. Uh, Both have been on before, and uh, it's great to have them back. We have Ron Ross and Howard Miller. Thanks. uh, Thanks, guys, for, for being on again.
2: Thank you. Hey, Sean. Great to be with you again.
1: And uh, quickly, for those who haven't heard you on a previous episode or haven't run across you in in uh, in a person uh, an in person event when we used to do those. I know there's one coming up in a couple of days. But uh, uh, Ron, a bit uh, what what you're up to, and uh, then we'll pass the ball to Howard to do the same.
2: Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, we're we're still working. All things cybersecurity at NIST. Uh, lately, I guess for the past two years now, I've been working uh, on the engineering side of the house uh, as opposed to. The security controls and the risk management frameworks and all the previous work. Uh, the engineering world is is going to get into some of the topics later on on the supply chain and public private partnerships. But the world of engineering and how we build systems is still at the central core of solving this problem long term. So I'm excited to uh, to participate today and and see where we go.
1: Yeah, can can just be about uh, tackling and and uh, responding at the end, right, Ron?
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: Very good. Howard.
3: Yeah, I'm a commercial broker with LBW Insurance. I head our technology division, Trademark Tech Secure. I've been selling cyber insurance since 2007 and lately really focused on a couple other avenues. One is Society of Automotive Engineers Cyber Physical System Security Standard called G32. And we're really partnering with NIST and their system engineering approach on that and the other is more of a, a leadership and a, and a governance perspective that, that ties in the technical personnel. And that is the Enterprise Risk Management Optimization article uh, that was published in Springer uh, called IRMO uh, last September. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that.
1: Perfect. And, and I can I can make a funny joke that uh, fall, fall goes off the rails, we... Thankfully, we have cyber insurance, but I know I know you, Howard, are very, very focused on risk management. We'll probably touch on some of the stuff you do with uh, with Pepperdine as well, where it, the goal of cyber insurance, hopefully, is to understand the risk you have and to mitigate that risk so you don't have a claim. <laughs> right? But but you do want that backstop. But uh, hopefully, the goal is to eliminate or mitigate the the risk in the first place. So I'm sure we'll touch on some of that. Absolutely. Uh so let's get into it. What I want to get your initial perspectives uh each of you individually um, on the current state of cybersecurity from from a public private uh collaboration perspective. Ron, I'll, I'll start with you. Where do, where do we kind of sit at the moment?
2: I think we're actually doing pretty well. You know, you have to go back uh throughout history and look at this problem from 40 years ago where we started and where we are today we've made enormous progress. Uh, I think one of the great things about our country is that we do have such a a vibrant industry, technology industry, and they're bringing just wonderful innovations to all of us as consumers. And over time, we've learned that some of this technology now, um, a lot of it's going into critical systems and the quality of those individual components, commercial products, everything we use to build systems. We have to make sure that those are of the highest quality possible because a failure in a technology component, especially as Howard mentioned in the cyber physical systems world, those kinds of things can cause catastrophic effects when the failure does occur. So we're now starting to look increasingly at working more closely with the private sector because they're the ones that produce all the technology. And I think this partnership still has a long way to go, but I I see goodwill on both sides because ultimately all of us are consumers of this great information technology, the computing technology. So it's in everybody's best interest to do the best we can to protect that technology the best way we can. And we have a lot of new things going on uh, based on the recent executive order that talks about um increasing software assurance in products. Uh, we have a lot of work going on now in the area of security labeling that we can talk about later if that uh, comes up on, on how do we trust products? What do we know about those products? What kind of information can the industry convey to us as consumers that can assure us that they're doing their part to achieve what we call due diligence in cybersecurity? So I am extremely optimistic about the future and I'm excited to talk uh, more about that today.
1: And Howard, your, your perspective, and, and maybe tap into some of the work you're doing on that cyber-physical uh, connected world.
3: Yeah, I think it was some time ago where we started looking at interconnected systems. And we have obviously seen cyber attacks that could jeopardize physical security, um, take down a nuclear reactor, things of that nature. And... So you have this interconnection between cyber and physical. And when I joined the G32 that the Society of Automotive Engineers about three years ago, it was clear that in order to bring together hardware, software, firmware, system engineering, there needed to be a perspective of risk management. And so we utilized actually the, the NIST 800-160. And I joined the leadership team and I've co-led the risk management framework subcommittee as we went through the technical processes, the 14 steps of the life cycle of a technology uh, product or a cyber physical system. And this could relate to smart grids, smart cities, even a computer on wheels that we call a car and that type of thing. And so it's really looking at the entire life cycle And one of the things that we took the approach was to use scenarios. And a scenario is essentially a story. So leadership can relate to stories and those stories can be technical as well. um, As you go down that pyramid from governance to management to technical operations. And we had a great presentation from NIST on the uh, ERM 2.0 framework and system engineering. And I really saw an opportunity to connect these separate disciplines. And so that's what's going on with the G32 in addressing this. And I think right now we should be focusing on solutions. There's a lot of fear. Uh, there's a lot of issues to address, but we need to make progress and we need to have results.
1: Yeah. and I. It's interesting. I mean, you touch on so many things. I have a, a program management mind. I, I think of things as a project and the a project starts with well, what's the goal? How are you going to move to that goal? Uh, what are the risks and ambiguities you have to work through? Uh, who's involved? How do you keep them all aligned? Um, a lot goes into that. And my sense is the we talk a lot about the disconnect between security and the business and we're we have a lot of vendors in the space of trying to connect security to engineering, right? Um, but the, this big picture of what is the story? How do we tell that story to business leaders, to line of business owners, to uh, the product teams, to the the delivery and 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 uh, engineering teams? So, Ron, I want to start with you. How it seems like you've gone from from the framework world of kind of helping tell some of those stories from an operational perspective, um, digging deeper into the engineering world, uh, how do you maintain those stories? Is that part of the work you're doing as well?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of that is about awareness. And, you know, when we talk about as Howard was talking about risk management, you know, in order to actually do good risk management, you have to make credible risk-based decisions. And I, I think that one of the big failings is we just don't have enough information about where the true risk is in some of these systems. Uh, Howard was talking about the 14 lifecycle processes uh, in the engineering world. In the engineering world, risk is about not building the product so it's correctly built. And also, uh, it it goes through a validation process. Does it actually do what it's supposed to do? So when you manage risk in the engineering world, you're worried about not producing something that works. And the other aspect that connects that to what you were talking about, Sean, is, is that, you know, mission and business owners, they're worried about just what's in the title. They want to get the job done. They have a mission to accomplish, whether it's a federal agency or a private sector company. And however that comes about, that's what they're focused on. Now, I think the education and awareness comes, uh, especially in the cyber physical world, where now those computers are driving everything that we care about, software, firmware, the quality of those components really does make a difference. And a lot of that information is buried below the waterline. This is why it's so important that working with industry, we develop a standard of due diligence for the development of software products, quality assurance in the software, software assurance, some kind of a standard that we all understand and that people can actually meet. So a vendor can make a claim about what their product does with regard to functionality and assurance, the security aspects of that product, they can produce some level of evidence to consumers that they've actually done their, what they, they said they were going to do. Okay, and then can cons-
1: I pause you yeah. quickly, Ron? Because yeah. uh, just to make sure I'm on the same page with you here. So when you say consumers, are you talking about, we're, we're talking business to business here, right? Not the end user consumer.
2: Well, you were talking about everybody, actually, uh, Sean. Okay. Uh, certainly, businesses are made up of you know the employees and the management structure and everything, but they're still consumers of the technology. I guess that's a better. We're consumers at home. We use technology at home. We use we use technology in businesses. So, but it's yeah, all the cause same re- thing.
1: Because the reason I ask that question, I'm I'm envisioning something like a FIPS 140-2. Is that what you're leaning toward? Where there's some some analysis and assessment and reporting on the state of not just the product, but how they build the product, the team's backgrounds that are building the products, and then how multiple components come together. uh,
2: I think you could make an argument about all all the above. You know, all those things are important. And, you know, it's about process, well-established, mature design, development processes. It's about qualified people who are building those products and systems. And maybe this can be voluntary. It's, you know, all of those details have to be worked out yet. But the core idea is we just need to give consumers of the technology more and better information so they can make credible risk-based decisions. Otherwise, they're just kind of, you know, flying by their pants, so to speak. And they're, it's just not going to work very well in the long run.
3: Yeah, and it holds true for the supply chain when you're building and use products, whether that's a government application or commercial, uh, what are the parts going into those? You know, are those compromised? Is there, are the materials up to spec? Is there malicious firmware and building the cybersecurity risk through the design and design process and, and the manufacturing process. So when it gets to operation, you have more assurance, that it's going to be more resilient. It's going to do what it says, and you're going to be able to achieve your business and mission objectives.
2: Yeah, totally right. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I, I want to stick with you for a moment, Howard, because I mean, we're <laughs> my perspective. I might be a little cynical just because of how much uh, I look, <laughs> at, look at this stuff, but I, I think we have a really hard time just keeping track of the software software world here. Yeah. And when you start connecting, let's look at a car. It's a mix of devices and mechanical, so, yeah, digital devices, sensors and things like that, and mechanical components and software, right? And and algorithms uh, such as AI and machine learning to help make decisions on behalf of the user and behalf of the environment that the car is running in. It seems like a complex environment to get a grasp of, we have, we're already having a tough time just in the software space so how how does some of the work that you're doing maybe help begin tackling that problem
3: well just briefly on g32 we have a separate committee uh, for software now we have a separate committee for hardware and then we have what's called illustrative example that's kind of putting this together with real world scenarios And so I think the standard's looking uh, to be published probably in two, three months at this point in time, and then we're gonna be digging into those other areas. So that's that's one approach that we're partnering with NIST on that's more holistic. The other approach is the IRMO methodology. And so how I'm approaching this is from a, a leadership and governance perspective. And I think leaders in that are at the top of these cyber physical systems and our organizations, they have to balance the right to have their own priorities and opinions with a proper evaluation of risks that could impact the business or mission objective. And when they're doing this, two problems arise. One third parties tend to be advocates for their own solutions. They're competing for resources, and they have their own agendas. Two, insiders may not be the bearer. They, they don't want to be the bearers of bad news. So they tend to become yes-men, and they may hide problems just to try to prolong normality. So what enterprise risk management optimization does is, Is it provides a common language and an investigative method, so leadership can better understand their opinions in the context of the actual threats they're facing. And so, the the IRMO methodology is really based on fundamental nature of wave. So, if you look at, say, the height of a wave, that's the amplitude. And when amplitude goes to extremes, boundaries break and damage is caused. You could equate that to a DDoS attack, Uh, cyber risk has extreme velocity. And it's usually after the attack that people discover they've been compromised. And unlike say a hurricane, where you can kind of see that coming uh, many days in advance. So these, these uh, ideas of frequency, amplitude, duration, velocity, these aspects of waves become the basis of creating attributes that go into a scoring system to better understand risk and reward scenarios. And it's the only framework I'm aware of that has an independent complementary scoring system for both risk and reward. And in the end, you're going to have a risk score, you're going to have a reward score, and then you optimize the two to get your optimized score. And it basically ranges between zero, which would be maximum risk, to 100, which would be maximum reward. So that's a little bit about the approach that I'm taking to help leadership and and governance, not to remove their bias, but to help them investigate more and to be able to justify their decisions.
2: Yeah, I think that's very complimentary uh, to what we're doing in the NIST 800-160. It connects the engineering world up to the C-suite, in essence, and that's a really important thing to do. And what Howard described is exactly the problem. And I do share a little bit of your, your cynicism, Sean, about this, this is a hard problem. There's no doubt about that. But the way we've always solved hard problems is to break them down into more manageable problems. And, and that's the really the essence of what engineers do. They face complex problems every day, from launching space shuttles to building bridges. And, and they solve problems. And I think, uh, yes, a lot of it is in the software because software is a huge component. But we actually know how to build better software. We've got uh, decades of experience in defining design principles, secure coding techniques, so we can, we can improve the individual piece parts, but we have to have a a standard of due diligence. So we're all kind of pulling in the same direction here. So we we have that standard that we can all achieve. And when a vendor makes a claim, they can be held accountable uh, for the kinds of things that they're producing that are going to be going into critical systems. Uh, That accountability is important because we as consumers have to make decisions every day on what components we're buying, how good are those components. And what Howard was talking about is in my view, transparency it's traceability of requirements, so we can actually see the quality of the individual piece parts, and then even more important, how are those those individual components being assembled into the larger thing we call a system, which is actually where the the capability comes from to support the missions and the business operations. so it really does fit together pretty nicely, and I think that's such an important point of connecting that world of engineering, which I consider below the waterline to all the folks at the enterprise who are operating above the waterline. And those two worlds, if they don't meet and there's not good communication and information flow up and down that chain, then I don't think we're going to be able to solve the problem long-term.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. And the system engineering cycle, the system engineering V starts with the business and mission objectives. And we took that approach in G32 and outlining scenarios based on those objectives. And that leads you, starts to lead you through the the cycle.
1: So I'm listening to this conversation. I'm either an engineer or I'm a line of business owner. Tell me maybe for both of those audiences, um, maybe a, a security uh, practitioner, maybe those three where, where do I look for this? What do I focus on? How do I begin to take action on some of this? Um, yeah, go for it, Ron.
2: Yeah, I think the, you know, the the problem I think we've had in cybersecurity is that I think we've worked for too long on a stovepipe. If you look at where we are today, the, the cybersecurity is an industry. And it largely is a separate office in most organizations. There's a, there's a CISO who works for the CIO. And I believe that stovepiping has hindered us to achieving some of these longer term objectives that we've been talking about today. Where do you start? you start by understanding that security plays an important role in the quality of a product. It's much like safety, reliability, survivability, mm-hmm. all of these illities. These are emergent properties that you have to design into systems. We don't have to have a separate security team operating you know, in that stovepipe. You bring the expertise into the development team, the integrated project team, so to speak. You bring the expertise in, they become part of the process that produces quality software. So in some sense, you start to shed that label of a security professional. They're more working as part of a team with that common objective, bringing 40 years worth of experience to, to that particular design and that particular project. And I think that that is a, a huge first step. To bring in all the right players to the table. Uh, as Howard said, you know, the, uh, the first couple of processes in the overall development lifecycle are mission business analysis and stakeholder requirements. So that initial step in the engineering process already connects the right people from the C suite into the process. And if we can just follow those basic principles of getting the right people to the table, having a set of uh, well-defined, um, mature principles to follow, whether it's software development, systems development, and just follow the science, follow the engineering, and then link it to the right people on the C-suite. I think that will get us down the road an awfully long way. And as Howard said, there's risk and there's reward in everything. That's the whole engineering process. We, we don't have this illusion of perfect security, perfect assurance, perfect systems. Everything operates in the trade space that ties back to the mission and the business operation. All problem. There's constraints on the problem all the way through the life cycle, and you're always making, we call them trade space decisions as we get to that final solution. Yeah, and
1: Howard, I'm keen to learn more about this reward piece because um, to your point earlier, I think we often focus on what, what's the like likelihood of damage and how do we avoid it? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering how, what's that reward view look like? Is it purely more customers, more market share more revenue, or is it a better customer experience or is it, we actually provide a secure environment for our, our customers. What's that reward space look like? It,
3: I mean, it's really about empowering leadership, and and that's what the IRMO methodology is for. And when you look, we start to look at the scoring system on IRMO. On the on the risk side, you're dealing with an exposure, which is an asset, an operation, um, people. It, it's something that could give rise to financial loss or destroy the mission, and that's being affected by perils, which are the causes of loss. And then you start to break it down from there. On the reward side you're really looking at opportunity uh, meets stakeholder value. So you're trying to drive stakeholder value and your ability to prepare for that and your agility to be able to capture that opportunity is is what's gonna have an impact on the reward side. And I think one thing to to keep in mind um, on the reward side is that when you are growing really quickly, say like a startup organization, Uh, You could probably it's going to create risk, uh, but you can probably tolerate that if you have good risk management and and you're going to be more resilient. But if you're, uh, say, you know, a large, um, you know, 50 billion dollar organization, you can't just double in size. It would be chaotic. So there has to be a sustainable growth. uh, And that's a really important concept. And the other thing is that opportunities can be overwhelming. Um, I. I went to, I don't want to pick on them, but I went to a restaurant and there was very few waiters there and it it was hard to serve the customers. So you got to be prepared and agile to meet those opportunities. But I just wanted to piggyback on what Ron was saying. And I think this holistic approach is is really important. Uh, We got to break through some of these silos and we have to look at the problem more holistically. One of the things I liked about G32 is we're trying to tackle cyber physical system security risk without specifying a perspic, uh, you know, pers- prescriptive one size fits all. So it, it can, it can open up, you can utilize different frameworks, but I think it's important for the broader community to look at this holistically. And I think there's an opportunity for insurance. Which is underwriting these risks and really starting to really dig into what kind of controls companies have and how effective those controls are going to be because if they're not the insurance company is going to pay these losses more and more and so there is a role for insurance and i think it ties in with the supply chain um where i believe say 30 to 40 percent of the risk is happening right now we're doing some work on this with the national defense industry association in the Trust and Assurance Committee for Microelectronics, and uh, we're going to be putting out a white paper on that uh, sometime this year.
1: Nice, lots of good work. And as we as we get close to to uh, wrapping this conversation, I'm sure we could have more on on individual points. But um, Ron, I want to get a, a sense from you, kind of where the future is with this, because I mean we've talked about connecting engineering to the executive uh, executive staff, the C-suite. Um, we've talked about uh, risk and reward, and we've talked about scenarios and storytelling. And I think those things together kind of, and I'll just simplify it by saying, if we can have a common story that everybody follows from executive to engineering and out through the supply chain, to me, that would be a really cool Thing to have, so you can uh, you can say I I map to this scenario in these ways, with this score and internal. That's my external view, and then internally, um, here's my risk versus reward and how everybody in the organization plays to plays a role to meet that. Um, so that's my view, but I'd like to hear from both of you where you see things headed uh, for risk management and secure engineering through uh properly manage risk.
2: Well I think that's probably the essence of of the question. How how is this all how is this story all end? And and you know none of us can really predict the future, at least very well. But I do think we're kind of at a watershed moment now. We we know how to solve this problem. The question is where's the forcing function going to come from to actually move the ball down mm-hmm. the road? And I think that forcing function, I think you're starting to see glimpses of that. We've we've had strong collaboration with government, industry, and academia for a long, long time. That's how we put our astronauts on the moon. That was one of the historic great collaboration efforts of all time. But I think what's going to happen, you're starting to see a little bit of this with the executive order, where we're starting to find, define what software assurance really means. I talked about due diligence. We really don't have a national standard, if you will, for what is the level of due diligence that everybody should be meeting. Not the maximum, but what's the entry level that we should expect of all commercial products that are coming out with respect to software and the basic things that developers ought to do. Um, Once we have that, then I think the the best way to, to solve this is with competition. When when a vendor makes a claim and we have something called an assurance case that's defined in international standards, what's the claim and what kind of evidence are you bringing forward to demonstrate that you've actually met the claim? There can be all kinds of different criteria that you can uh, array to uh, have uh, to make those decisions. A, A great example would be uh, in the, in the grocery store, you have this, all the cereal boxes when you go down the hundreds of different types of cereal or any product that has a label on it. How much sodium is in there? How much fat? How much protein? We use the basic information coming from the developer, but there's been some industry standards set. Some of it's regulatory, some of it's not. But there's competition because I believe that industry produces fantastic technology. They want to continue to innovate, which is also critically important. But I think they also want to bring their their customers the most secure products they can because they know these products are going into everything that matters. So that kind of a competition could serve as a forcing function to continue to innovate at the pace of industry, but also do so in a manner that gives consumers the maximum amount of information so they can do, as Howard has been suggesting, make good risk management decisions as they build systems and buy products.
1: So, Howard, is it is it, um, is it a function of marketing and, and storytelling in a way that people can understand it, in- including the insurers? <laughs> I, I, I think
3: the scenario-based approach is something that can work uh, from the top perspective, the governance and leadership perspective, down to the technical. So I think the scenarios work. I think that also there needs to be more integration and look looking at cybersecurity holistically. I think what the G32 is doing by trying to put out a standard that is not saying you have to use one control framework or anything, but is focusing on this the intersection between software, hardware, and these cyber-physical systems is something that could cross industry boundaries. And I think that's part of the solution is looking at more of a holistic type frameworks like G32. I think the IRMO framework is where we can connect that executive leadership and the board with some of these issues um, and help empower leadership so they can have a way to look at these issues and, and justify their decisions. And I also think that there needs to be somewhat of a carrot and stick approach. So that companies that are willing to meet certain standards and are willing to provide more assurance may have greater opportunities. And on the flip side, there may be liability And that's an area where I feel insurance can play a role in verifying and underwriting company security, but also providing a financial backstop and resources. And that's something I could see an application for cybersecurity, which I've been looking into personally for larger supply chains.
1: An interesting point I've been... Dabbling a little bit in in the the cyber insurance space, and it seems to be constricting in the sense that uh, fewer carriers are—that's the right term—are uh, covering uh, entities, uh, and perhaps even raising prices and reducing uh, policies <laughs> in the process. And well, they- that, that that could be a big stick if you if you can't get insurance or can't get a good rate then you may need to change how you look at risk.
3: <laughs> well, it goes back to Ron's watershed moment. You know, we have an opportunity here to raise the bar and to get more coordinated on how we're addressing this from more of a life cycle approach. And I think that's going to make a difference. Uh, Ron says there's tools already that can be utilized. So part of it. Is you know have, having the communication, having a common terminology and common standards that we can all support to to drive this forward, and with the way the world is going, with an increase in risk, it's going to really start to motivate people more and more uh, that we have to make decisions in a in a more compressed time frame. Yep,
1: love it. And Ron final word from you as we as we close here.
2: Well, I'm always the optimist, uh Sean, you know me. I I think we have uh, we, this is the beginning of a new time. Uh, we have all the right People in the places where they need to be. We have a great industry. I, I think the the government is moving, like I said, with the executive order uh, to a to a better place. And the question is, are we going to seize the opportunity right now, as Howard said, to to really move this thing forward? And you know, I, I can't help but also think about the world situation today, what we're experiencing in uh, the the war in Europe uh, with U- Ukraine. Uh, that really helps to focus the cyber. Vulnerabilities and the cyber attack potential in our attack surface that we've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. But I don't think that these things really come home until you actually see things like this happening and understand our true vulnerabilities. So I hope I'm hoping that there's something good comes out of this as far as what we can do uh, as you know the American people to to really up our game and, and take a new turn here that we can uh, we can really make some advances in this area that we all care about but it nonetheless is difficult and very challenging
1: yeah, well put Ron well I'm, I'm thrilled to have you both on of course um, I, I value everything you do from a professional perspective and uh, cherish you as, uh, as personal friends as well And everything from the individual component in engineering up to the storytelling at the executive level and everything between, super important. For those listening, I want to thank you for joining today. I know Howard and Ron have a ton of resources they can share, uh, G32 and Irmo and the new NIST uh, resources. So I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. People can can access those and uh, explore and hopefully take action. (laughs) And uh, so, Howard, Ron, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for uh, the work you do, and for being part of this conversation.
2: Thanks so all much, be John. With you. Thanks. Thank you, John.
0: Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. HITRUST is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HitrustAlliance.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think